the Bible is a book about God. That's a statement I've made many times. And no doubt you've heard people say to you things like, well, no, the Bible is just a a book of stories. They wouldn't be wrong. The Bible is a book of stories, not just a book of stories, but the Bible contains many stories. And in reality, those stories teach us about God. Uh, Sometimes in our preparing for next Sunday, I would have you read a passage. And one of my questions for that passage is, What do you learn about God in this passage? Because the Bible's a book about God. Other people will say, well, the Bible really just tells us kind of uh, one written history of the, the nation of Israel. Well, there's truth to that. The Bible does let us know about God's calling of the nation Israel and his working through the nation of Israel and the founding of the nation of Israel. But the Bible isn't just that. Others will say, well, yeah, the Bible's a good book. It's a a book about, it teaches us maybe how to live a a moral life in in this world. It's a a good book. Yeah, it is. It does teach us how to live a, a moral life. And I would say, first and foremost, when we understand the Bible is a book about God, then we focus on God and we learn how we can have a relationship with God and how God works in the world and how God has moved through time and space and history to reveal himself to us. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are probably the most difficult, more, most complicated section of the entire book of Romans. And yet I have discovered that if we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11 from the standpoint that the Bible is a book about God, then we will see how Romans 9, 10, and 11 help us understand God in a better way. Romans 9 begins to answer our fourth question in the book of Romans. If you'll recall, the first question that we addressed in the book of Romans in the first few chapters was, what is wrong with this world? And then the second question following that is, well, what is the solution to the promises of this world? And very simply, oversimply stated, what's wrong with this world is sin, and the solution is Jesus Christ. And then the third question was, well, how can one live a good life? And we learned all the way up through chapter 8 that it was really in being obedient and in, in, in following this Jesus who died on the cross for us, who while we were still sinners, gave himself for us. But today, we'll address the fourth question. Who is in control of this world? Just in my prayer earlier, I mean, and I could go down the list of Strife and war and posturing for power that just seem to be replete. And violence and, and in our cities and on our streets. And, and you say, wow, it just seems like the world is going out of control. And Romans addresses that question. And a word that you're going to see, you see it in the sermon title for today. I'm going to use it quite a bit throughout the next three weeks as we go through 9, 10, and 11. Is a word, sovereign. That's a a theological word, but it's also a biblical word. In fact, you'll find it mostly in your Old Testament. And in fact, in Old Testament, it's usually in prayers where someone would pray, O Sovereign Lord. We find it a handful of times in, in the New Testament. 
it's a word that could be translated master or owner or even lord. Uh, it's, it's a word that has the sense of one who's over the house or who's over the community or who is in control. It's a word that speaks of one who has authority. Oddly enough, that word does not appear in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but the concept is very clear. And what we'll find in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that when we're speaking of God, we speak of him being sovereign or in control over heaven and earth. But one thing that's very true, God being sovereign does not mean that he takes away our decision-making power. He created us with free will, with the ability to make decisions. Like I've said recently, God being sovereign doesn't mean he decided what color of socks I would wear today. The fact that all my dress socks are black, he didn't even have to worry about making a decision that had already been made. God just does, God's not some kind of a puppet master moving every aspect of your life, every decision. It's the old story as the guy fell down the stairs and he looked up to heaven and went, wow, I'm glad that's over with. That's not our God. He's not like manipulating everything. Uh, just last week, you know, when you hear sirens go down Geneva Road and you live that close to it, you just kind of ignore them. But when you hear lots of sirens come down Geneva Road and then you hear them turn off, you know that something happened. I heard that sound this last week. I went out, I walked down the street, I could see no less than three fire engines, two or three ambulances, a whole bunch of squad cars. There had been a, an awful accident on Geneva Road in Pleasant Hill. Three vehicles, all three totaled, one upside down. I don't believe for a minute God caused that accident to happen. That's not his sovereignty. God doesn't go around just smacking people around. I believe God might be able to work through such a tragedy but he doesn't make stuff like that happen. And we need to keep that in mind. Because when we understand God's sovereign control, God's sovereignty is over the fact that God came up with a plan. And God's plan from the before time began was to create a people that he would create and draw to himself and redeem to himself and a people that would inhabit this earth that he created and in this earth they were they were we were designed to create a culture a culture that would grow to worship him that we would use all of the natural resources we have to, to honor and glorify God. And, and sin messes all that up, but it doesn't mess up God's plan. God's plan is still in place. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the next few weeks. The other challenge we have as we enter Romans 9, 10, and 11 is if you're reading through the book of Romans, it just doesn't seem to fit. You know, last week we ended with that idea that, you know, in all these things we are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden we go to, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience my, confirms that I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart for my own people. And you go, whoa, whoa, Paul, what happened here? That's like, a, uh, that's like emotional whiplash. 
And there are actually scholars that say, well, Romans 9, 10, and 11 don't fit into the argument. It's like a big parenthesis, and you go from chapter 8, and you just jump right ahead to chapter 12, and it all fits together. I, I don't take that approach. I, I believe that these chapters are very important in Paul's argument in Romans. I think if we skip 9, 10, and 11, we miss an important aspect of God's relationship with humanity beginning with the people of Israel. We miss the fact that the Bible's a book about God. We miss the fact that God is in control of this world. So today and each week, you're going to get a survey. So today's kind of a survey of chapter 9. And, and then next week, it'll be a survey of chapter 10 and, and chapter 11. And, and what we're going to see this morning, in the next few minutes, are four key realities that reveal the balance between God's sovereignty and our choices regarding God and life as evidenced through God's dealing with Israel. Remember this. Phoebe uh, was most likely the one who carried the letter to the people at Rome and she's reading to the church at Rome. And if you'll recall, there were probably maybe 100, 150 Christians, Christ followers in Rome at that time. They were divided up into small little house churches. Micro churches is a name I've heard lately. And, and they were comprised of both Jewish believers, Jewish people who had put their faith in Christ, and non-Jewish people who had put their faith in Christ. Sometimes you see the word Gentile uh, lumping all of that. For the Jews, there were only two types, types of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. That's it. And all of us who aren't Jewish, we're the Gentiles. And as you'll recall, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome for several years, and now we're filtering back. And so their church dynamics had, had changed a bit. And so Paul wants his Jewish listeners to know you have a valuable place in God's economy, but he also wants the non-Jewish listeners to know you can learn from how God worked through the Jewish people. So Paul says in verse 9 and verse 1 of verse 9, I just read it, I, I'm, I'm not lying. He says, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish myself I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And what is he saying? The people of Israel largely rejected the message of Paul. But the people of Israel had great spiritual privilege. Now, I know this first point sounds like an old movie line, but... Spiritual privilege results in great responsibility. The spiritual privilege that the Jewish nation had gave them great responsibility. Paul says, I'm in anguish over them. Why? Because this people have all the advantages. Theirs is, he says, Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever to be praised. Paul said the Jews have all the advantages. They were the first, chapter 3, he says they're the first to get the very words of God. 
And he says, I, my heart is broken because they consistently rejected the message that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul says, and you know what, if you're a parent or you're an aunt or an uncle and, and you see your children go through something or your nieces or your nephews or maybe your younger cousins go through something agonizing, you would say the same thing as Paul. It's kind of like, he says, I, I wish I were cursed and cut off from Christ. In other words, I would rather go through the pain of not knowing Jesus so that maybe they would know Jesus. I would rather go through, I don't want to see my kids go through this pain. I would rather me go through that pain instead of them. That's kind of the sentiment of Paul. And I learned something about Paul here. We get the idea sometimes that Paul was this guy that was just kind of stoic and hard-nosed and unemotional, and he just went for it. And I see a man who's compassionate and who's concerned and who agonizes in his heart. Paul's own pattern was to go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He would come into a town. He would find a synagogue. He would go and he would try to reason with them, showing them that Jesus was the fulfillment of the, Jew, of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he would get kicked out of the synagogue. And so he would go find some Gentiles who listened to him, maybe even Gentiles who were in kind of Jewish proselytes. They would come out and say, okay, i got to hear more about this. And Paul says they have a great spiritual privilege and a great responsibility, and they turned it down, and he agonizes. A couple of quick points here, quick observations in these first five verses. We've got to always remember the nation of Israel did nothing to warrant God's choosing them. We'll see that as we move into the next section. All the blessings they received, the, the, the whole story of the Exodus, all of that, Abraham being chosen by God, that was all God's work. They did nothing. And I think for Paul's Jewish listeners, they need to be reminded of their spiritual heritage. Some of us have a spiritual heritage. Some of us don't. One of my professors in college he traced it back as far, or in seminary, traced it back as far as he could, and he discovered he was probably the first Christ follower in his lineage as far back as he could trace. Some of us, though, we don't have to do that. God has privileged us, but with that privilege comes responsibility. Secondly, we need to understand Part of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was that all nations would be blessed through him. And now we know that through Christ that is true. The blessing comes through Christ that ultimately came through Abraham. And Paul's non-Jewish listeners, you and me, we need to know that that is an important part of our spiritual heritage. Our spiritual heritage as followers of Jesus begins far back into the Old Testament. There is richness in the Old Testament. It's not just the story of the Jewish nation. It's our story. We are part of those who are blessed through Abraham. And we need to learn how God worked and, 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 develop, and, and realize that even if we can't trace our spiritual lineage back through our family, we can trace it back through God's family. 
There's a third quick observation here. Notice how Paul says, I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart. For, and he says, I wish I could be cut off them in verse 3. For the sake of my people, though, my own people, those of my race. The Apostle Paul never lost sight of the fact that he was a Jew, that he was of the nation of Israel. He never gave up his culture. In fact, the book of Acts chapter 15, one of the debates there was should we require Gentiles to, in a sense, become Jewish in their practices and culture before they could come to Christ. It was no. Culture and different cultures, the different cultures we have in our world are beautiful. There's a refrain in the book of Revelation around the throne of God and it's every nation, tribe, tongue. God is a God that celebrates the variety of cultures. I love the kaleidoscope of culture that's there in the book of Revelation. So God doesn't say, okay, give up your culture, become somebody else to come. No, you come to faith in Christ, and then by God's grace, <clears throat> as we get to know people of other cultures, we can see God through the lens of their culture and see just how amazing our God is. So Paul doesn't say, I gave up my Jewish culture. No, he says, they're still my people. This is my race. These are my folks. I, I hurt for them. Great spiritual privilege bears with it great responsibility. So Paul then goes in and and he talks about the next section here, a longer section, all the way through verse 18. And in this section, he's going to give us three illustrations that would have been very familiar to his Jewish audience and very instructive to his non-Jewish audience. And, And the point that he makes in this section is simply this. God's plan will happen whether we join him or not. Uh, Now, the question would come up, well, if God gave all of this privilege to the Jews, if he gave them his word and the the covenants and the patriarchs and, and all of this stuff and it didn't work, well, then is God's word weak? Will God's word fail? Maybe God's word isn't sufficient. And Paul says it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Paul assures his audience, and especially his Jewish audience, although the nation may have rejected God's plan, God's plan is still going to be effective. His word is not a failure. Uh, Just as we said a few weeks ago in chapter 8, not all human beings are God's children. All human beings are God's creatures. But only those who have put their faith in Christ are God's children. Paul now says it in a different way. Not every Jew is one of God's children because if they haven't been come into faith in Christ, they're 
Jewish by descendant. They're Jewish by nationality. They're Jewish by heritage, but they haven't become followers of Jesus. And that first illustration is Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, Abraham had a son before Isaac. You see, Abraham was told God's plan. God's plan to Abraham was, you're going to be a great nation. And Abraham said, time out. I don't have a child. How can I be a great nation without a, a big family? And God said, don't worry about it. You and Sarah are going to have a son. And Abraham waited and waited and waited for years, upwards to 20 years. And finally, he and Sarah were talking and she said, you know what? Here, take my hand, my maiden, Hagar, have a child through her. That was very acceptable in the culture, very acceptable in the tradition of the time. And so they did that. And and Abraham and Sarah, they have a son. His name was Ishmael. And God said, I'm going to bless him. He will be a great nation, but he's not the son of promise. He's not the one. And I think I learned a great lesson in that story, and maybe you can. Abraham tried to make God's plan happen, and he failed. You and I can't make God's plan happen. We can't make God do anything. We have to wait on his timing. And actually, the story in the Old Testament is that the Lord came to Abraham, and he said, by this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. Now, Abraham is pushing 100. Sarah's over 90. And the Bible tells us she laughed. Do you know what the name Isaac means? It means laughter. Every time she called him to dinner, she was reminded that she doubted God, that she laughed at God. Isaac is born. And, and he's born according to God's plan. And now Paul says only those children born through Isaac, only those children who are the children of faith are the children of promise. But then he gives a second illustration. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So, so now the second illustration is Rebekah's children. Isaac marries Rebekah. And she can't have children, and they pray, and finally God opens her womb, is the way the Scriptures say it. And uh, she has twins. Now, prior to them being born, if you go to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 25, you'll see that she cried out to God because they were wrestling inside of her. And, And God finally said, you know what? Inside you are two great nations. And he says, the older will serve the younger. That was a statement that went against all cultural norms. That was a statement that went against all tradition. That was a statement that reversed the order of everything. And and, and Paul says that. He says, God's purpose and election would stand not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, God is saying, I have a plan, and my plan doesn't fit into your cultural standards. My plan doesn't fit into your traditional norms. My plan is the plan that I'm going to do. And in fact, he goes so far as to quote Malachi, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. 
before I take a minute and look into that statement, when you look at the book of Genesis and you look beyond chapter 25, you see Esau. Esau grew up to be a very impulsive person. Esau grew up to be someone who was all about instant gratification, and so he sold his birthright his, for, a, for a bowl of soup. Esau then became very bitter when he lost the blessing. He became very bitter. He did things just to irritate his parents. And it would be very easy to go, well, see, God knew what kind of person Esau was. Well, time out. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a manipulator. He was every bit as bad as Esau. God made his decision not based on future character. God made his decision based on his will before these guys had any chance to even do anything. They they had no chance to prove themselves or to prove themselves worthy or unworthy. God's choice was long before they were born. But then we have this statement. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You'll see a similar statement in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father, mother, and children. It's like, what? And we have to look at that word hate, not as we see it, as this venomous uh, despising. We need to look at it in a different way. Like this. On Tuesday, Charlene and I will celebrate 42 years of being married. 42 years ago, in Plano, Illinois, at the First Baptist Church on a bright, sunny Saturday afternoon, we made promises to each other. One of those promises was forsaking all others. I will be faithful to you alone. Here's what that promise means. In essence, when it comes to my relationship with Charlene or Charlene's relationship to me, it's exclusive to the point where it's almost as if we hate everybody else because nobody else gets in between that relationship. I will say that to young couples when I do premarital counseling. Your relationship as husband and wife is your most important, most significant human relationship on earth. And no one, not even the children you may have down the road, is, are more important than your relationship together. A friend of mine used to say this. He, he had retired and his wife had done, he and his wife had done well and saved. And, and they actually made annual treks to Hawaii. That was kind of their... And they would go spend several weeks there, you know, and they knew people. They had gotten it. And, and, and one day, his, one of his sons kind of giving him a little ribbing, saying, Dad, you're spending our inheritance. And he said, let me tell you something, boys. I chose your mom. You were potluck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the idea is that your mom is first. And, and that, that's kind of what Jesus, Paul is saying here, and Malachi was saying, God's love for Jacob wasn't that he didn't love Esau, but he was exclusive in his love for Jacob and his love for Israel. 
It's the it's Jacob who brings that about. God's choice of Jacob would he would be the one to carry on the promise. And God's rejection of Esau was not that he hated, you know, despised him. It's just that Esau wasn't going to carry on the promise. And verse 14 kind of reminds us that. What shall we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's choices in his plan are dependent upon his mercy. You and I can't influence God's plan, nor can we thwart God's plan. We're only responsible to follow God's plan and to fit into it as he reveals it to us. Paul has a third illustration. It begins in verse 17. Uh, Well, verse 16 says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God had a purpose for Pharaoh back in Exodus. And his purpose was to display his power through Pharaoh so that God's name would be proclaimed. Have you ever thought about how different things would have been? If Moses would have marched into Pharaoh and said, I'm bringing a message from the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you are to let my people go. And what if Pharaoh would have said, you know what? You're right. We need to do that. We need to let these people go. They need to go back to the land of promise. Yes, here, I'm signing the decree now. They're done. We'll figure out another way to do all of our building. We need to let them go. I believe God's power would have still been displayed through Pharaoh and God's name would have still been proclaimed through Pharaoh had Pharaoh got on board with God's plan because God's plan is going to come through anyway. But you know the story in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh went, nah, not going to do it. And and the Bible says he hardened his heart. And so God sends these plagues, these judgments, these disciplines to try to convince him that this is the only God that you need to serve. And, And God knew in his plan that what that would happen is that would harden his heart even further. And so we get into this debate. Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. So Pharaoh was ultimately defeated. And guess what? God's power and his name was proclaimed in all the earth. In fact, it's interesting. If you continue reading through your Old Testament, you get down the road a ways to the book of Joshua. And after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they finally get to Jericho. They send the spies in. And what's Rahab say? We've heard about how you parted the Red Sea, your God parted the Red Sea and defeated the kings of Og and Sihon. We've heard about that, and we tremble. But you know what? You get further on, you get through all of Joshua and all of Judges, and you get to 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel chapters 4, and again in chapter 6, you have the Philistines and the Israel army going at it, and the Philistines capture the, the Philistines hear that the Ark has come of the Covenant has come into the Israel camp and they get very much afraid because they said, we know what this God did to the Egyptians and now that Ark is here. Now they brought their God into their camp. 
and God is judging Israel. They lose that battle, and the Philistines capture the ark. But everywhere the ark goes, there are problems. And finally they say, this is the God who defeated the Egyptians. What's the point? Throughout history, People knew about the God who defeated Pharaoh because God said, Pharaoh, I raised you up so my name would be proclaimed and so my power would be made known. God's plan will happen whether we join him or not. And our poor choices don't negate God's plan. Paul writes in this dialogue style in Romans periodically he throws out these questions we have that now and this next batch of questions tell us that God's plan is God's prerogative verse 19 well one of you is going to say to me then why does God still blame us for who's able to resist his will yeah at that point he says okay I get it I've heard arguments too you've heard these well if God is sovereign if God's in control why does it matter what I do why does it matter how I live my life? If God's going to do what God's going to do, why should I care? Why don't I just eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow I'll die. Why shouldn't I just do that? And Paul gives several objections, and his first one is this. Just remember you're a creature. He says, but who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Oh, I've asked God that. Have you ever asked God that? God, why did you make me this way? You know, God, why did you make me handsome instead of rich? I'd rather be rich. You know, <laughs> Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul says we don't have a right to call God's plan into question. He said we have as much right to call God's plan into question as a piece of pottery has to look at the potter and go, no way, you're not making me like that. We don't have that right. He's God, we're not. That might be a newsflash for you. He's God, we're not. But then Paul goes on. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath, made his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for discussion, destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? Paul says God in his mercy shows great patience. Even those who reject him, and Paul calls them objects of wrath, even people who reject God, God grants them time and time and time to change. And objects of his wrath doesn't mean God's angry and going to punish someone. It's that, that wrath means that, that response that ultimately will separate them from him in some way. See, God in his mercy sometimes lets people just have their own way. And God in his mercy sometimes lets people try to figure out that they can make life work on their own. And sometimes it looks like they're succeeding. But in the end, they can succeed, but they still don't have God. And what Paul does is he draws again from his vast Old Testament knowledge, and he quotes Hosea. 
Hosea, that, that book in the Minor Prophets, that prophet who went down and, and found a, a prostitute and brought her out of prostitution and married her and loved her and she kept going back and God kept telling him to go get her and bring her back. And, and, and that's, that is what God, that was a living illustration of God's love for his people. And Hosea says, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. God keeps offering himself to people who reject him so that one day maybe he could call them his people, his loved ones. And Paul then quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 26. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will call, be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have had become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Paul points to his listeners that God always preserves a remnant. And even in the warnings of severe judgment and doom, there's a remnant. And I think we can take comfort in that. If sometimes you feel like you're the only one, you're not. I know I've done funerals where I, I would have been called by the funeral home, would you come and do a funeral for this family? They don't have a church. They, they don't have a pastor. They asked us to provide someone. And every time I have the opportunity, if, if, the, if everything works, I say yes to those opportunities. And I'll call the family. We'll talk back and forth. Sometimes I'll ask if they had a, if there was a, I, I will always ask, what, tell me about their faith journey, you know. And so often there is no faith journey. And I will share, and, 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 and God has given me, you know, opportunity to share in very gentle ways uh, the glory of God, the beauty of the gospel as I think about the person and how they would, and, and, and the great qualities. I mean, even the worst of us have good, some good qualities. And you know, it never ceases to amaze me. At the end of the funerals, people are walking up. Somebody, almost, I, I don't think there's been a time where there hasn't. Somebody walks up and just grabs my hand and says, thanks for sharing the gospel today. It was really needed. They're the remnant in that family. They're the one in that family. They're the one in that circle of friends. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. And a comfort to Paul's Jewish listeners is a reminder that God hasn't forgotten them. And a comfort to God, the non-Jewish listeners is that God does not forget his own. He will not forget them no matter what happens. Would you hear that today? God won't forget you. God's plan is God's prerogative. And it's a plan that's heavy on mercy. And it's available to all. Well, Paul wraps this up with a final statement, and that is that God's sovereignty sets the standard. Paul talks about the unbelief of Israel. What do we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained the goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. If you read the Old Testament, you'll read these things like, this people 
They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What happened was it became the idea that you know, if I do all the stuff, I'll be right with God. And, and God says, all the stuff was intended to make you look at your heart and how your heart needed to be turned toward me. The great Shema, the passage in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you will love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Always what God wanted was a change of heart. You can do all the stuff. I had a friend, he was one of our youth leaders. He went, you know, grew up on the mission field, grew up leading youth groups, went to a, a really good Christian college, and was a student leader in college, came to seminary where we lived, and he was there actually a year before me, and, and he said, I, I hit a point where I realized something was wrong. Something is not right in me. He literally took a year off and went back home, and he realized all his life he had been doing all the good stuff, but he had never once stopped and said, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins, and, and I want you to be the forgiver and leader of my life. He had never put his faith in Christ. He had put his faith in doing all the stuff. And today, he's a missionary in Italy, emphasizing heart relationship with Christ over doing the stuff. Israel did the stuff. And so when they came, when, when the gospel comes along and Jesus said, I took care of all the stuff. I fulfilled the law. You just have to believe in me. No, I can't do that. Paul says it was a stumbling stone. He quotes Isaiah. I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You see, God says, I make the rules. They're my prerogative. And my rule is faith. You've heard the expression, my house, my rules. You know, now Charlene and I, because we have laminate hardwood floors, we, we typically, it's never really been our thing to take our shoes off when we walk in the door. But if we go to your house, we will ask, do you want us to take our shoes off? And if the answer is yes, then we are taking our shoes off. Your house, your rules, your prerogative. And in fact, if we forget to ask and you say, oh, could you take your shoes off? How rude would it be if we kept our shoes on even though you asked? How rude would that be? It's your house. It's your rules. God says this, is, this world is my house and this universe is my house. And it's my rules, and it's my prerogative, and you're not going to earn your way. I'm not going to let you earn your way in, because as Ephesians 2 says, if we earned our way in, then some of us would be bragging, oh, I did more than you. You know how much time I spent studying this Bible compared to you? I'm in. No, it's not about boasting. It's about Christ. It's about following Him. And we don't have the authority to renegotiate the terms. And so this section from Isaiah just reminds the original recipients, it reminds you and me, you and I either trip over the grace of God and the free gift of salvation, or we accept it. 
to trip over the grace of God means doing all the stuff. Figuring that, you know what, if I do more good stuff than somebody else, I can get God's attention. I love the summary that Eugene Peterson writes in the message. Listen to these words. Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects, they didn't notice God right in front of them, like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah gives us the metaphor for putting this together. Careful, I put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone you can't get around, but the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you'll find me on the way, not in the way. Don't you like that? If you're looking, you will find me on the way, not in the way. Our sovereign God has a plan in place that involves putting our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and to trust him when he says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. In his grace and mercy, God doesn't force us into his plan, but he invites us. He constantly invites us. He invites us to join him, to follow him, to find that he is the God who's not in the way, but on the way. The Bible is a book about God and his plan for this world. And choosing God is choosing life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this passage. I know this has been a a, a lengthy one, and I, I get that. And yet... There's so much here to remind us about you and who you are and how you work. Lord, I pray that each of us today would take a step back and to make sure that we are not tripping over you, but joining you, joining you in your work, joining you in trusting you, joining you in the plan that you've already set. And in that, may we find rest. And in that, may we find peace. And in that, may we find true contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.